charge of their own lives. They want to be less dependent on health professionals of all kinds. And they're really fed up with the current health care system. Uh, so I think a, a lot of things are coming together at the moment that are making for a tremendous cultural response to this kind of information. Are you getting much feedback from other doctors? Yes, many doctors come to my presentations, and the program in integrative medicine is overwhelmed now with requests for training. Um, this is, I think, a, a really innovative uh, step for an American medical school to take. Uh, one aspect of the program is a two-year fellowship training for doctors who've completed residencies in primary care specialties. We're taking the first physician trainees starting July 1st of this year. We've already selected them. And this will be a two-year program. Uh, our aim here is not to just train doctors who are going to go out and open practices in integrative medicine. We want to train leaders who are going to go out and set these programs up at other medical schools and bring them into large-scale healthcare systems. In addition, we have a variety of programs for physicians in practice, for medical students. We're working busily to involve pharmacists and nurses and, and other health professionals. It's a, it's a beginning of a real revolution. So what will happen when, a, when someone goes through this two-year program? What happens then? Well, they're going to get a certificate saying that they've completed a training in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona. And as I said, then they're equipped to go out and, and really get this kind of medicine moving. Uh, my longer-range aim is to develop a, this as a whole field and be able to give a residency training in it. And I hope eventually this will filter down into the first four years of medical school. You know, and I think even, even beyond, because... Uh, I think a lot of our problems in medicine start before people even get to medical school. You know, I think in the, in the way we select people for medical school, why should doing well on standardized tests in any way predict ability to foster healing in people? You know, I don't really see a correlation there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think it's the, it's the beginning of a start of real change in education in general, at looking at new models for training health professionals. In your book, Eight Weeks to Optimum Health, um, there's the skeptic who says, well, what can you do in eight weeks? I mean, how can I, how can I really change my health in eight weeks? Well, this is not a crash course intended to get you into a new bathing suit for the summer. You know, this is uh, a program to lay the foundation of a healthy lifestyle. At the end of eight weeks, it's up to you to figure out how you're going to make this work for the rest of your life. Uh, so in a way, using saying eight weeks to optimum health, it's a little bit of a, you know, drawing people in. However, I think it is fair to say that if you stick with this program at the end of eight weeks, you will have the basis of a healthy lifestyle. And then you have to figure out how to adapt it to your own particular circumstances. So it's like today is the rest of your life for optimum health. Exactly. Yes. And I think the, the point here is that most of the diseases that kill and disable people prematurely in our culture are diseases of lifestyle that can be avoided if people would make better choices about how to eat, how to exercise, how to handle stress, how to use their minds in the service of healing, how to make use of all of the simple and expensive remedies that nature provides us with to support the body's healing functions and defenses. One of the things I thought that was very interesting in, in, in the book Eight Weeks to Optimum Health was that you incorporated breathing exercises, mm -hmm. um, which are essentially in what, what look like meditations yeah. as well, right? Um, let me say first that this program, I think, is quite comprehensive. It addresses all aspects of human life. It's not just the physical body, but also our mental, emotional life and spiritual life as well. And many of the techniques that I suggest for raising spiritual energy 
are things that I think are very doable and seem familiar. I suggest that people have flowers in their environment, for example, that you identify and spend more time with people who raise your spirits. Uh, and I strongly recommend doing this series of breathing techniques. Uh, I have, I'm sure, on these programs in the past, talked about the fact that the words for spirit and the word for breath are the same in many languages, not in English. And that working with breath is a real way of accessing spiritual forces in us. So again, this is, uh, it's, I, I'm making a distinction here between spirituality and religion. To me, uh, spirituality has to do with, wor with accessing, working with, acknowledging the reality of the non-physical aspect of our beings. And breath really straddles the border between the physical and the non-physical. And there are many practical applications of breath work. On, on one crude level, it's a powerful relaxation technique. It's a way of affecting the involuntary nervous system. It's a way of regulating your moods. But I think it's also a way of becoming aware of your spiritual dimension uh, and doing real spiritual work. And yes, you're quite right to say that, this is, that these are forms of meditation. You know, the first breath technique that I recommend is just breath observation, asking people to sit down, starting with five minutes at a time, putting their attention on their breath without trying to influence it. I mean, that is the simplest form of meditation. Yeah, also, you, you borrowed from people like Stephen Levine and Thich Nhat Hanh. Absolutely. Yes. You know, these are all, uh, I think, very useful uh, teachers of simple spiritual meditative techniques uh, designed for Westerners uh, who can explain this in language that I think many of us can access. Speaking of that word, uh, spirit and inspiration and being inspirited in, in the breath and the fact that it appears in all cultures. I was recently uh, talking with Wayne Dyer, who, mm -hmm. whose book Manifest Your Destiny has a section where he basically identified all of the words in different cultures and for for God. And, and they all have this sound, ah, uh -huh. ah. Or awe. Ah, ah, yeah, yeah, ah. Right. You know? And uh, that sound is like, you know, like, what does the doctor say when you open your mouth and say, <laughs> ah. <laughs> you know that I'm I'm smiling when you say that because um, in my freshman year at, at uh, Harvard College, this would have been 1960, uh, having no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up, uh, I ended up majoring in linguistics. And the aspect of linguistics that I was most interested in was psycholinguistics, in particular whether the language you speak influences your perception of reality. It was very difficult to do that at Harvard. Harvard was not interested in that at all. There was a guy at MIT named Roger Brown who had mm. written a, word, a book called Words and Things about uh, psycholinguistics. And one aspect of it is something called phonetic symbolism. That is, do sounds have meaning independent of the language you speak? And one of the um, statements that was made was that these uh, vowel sounds like ah, aw, connote bigness or largeness. Uh, vastness, and that may be one reason why words for God uh, incorporate those sounds very frequently. Yeah, amazing. Another one of your favorite things are tonics, what you call tonics, mm -hmm. particularly things like ginger yeah. and garlic. Yeah. What else? Green tea. Uh, I mentioned, by the way, that aspirin, I think, has... Yes, that was very interesting. M ...might be considered a tonic, even Did though it's... you suggest a daily dose of aspirin? I take a half tablet of aspirin myself, which is the same as two baby aspirins. Aspirin is, is a little more toxic than some of these botanical tonics. You know, it has a potential to cause stomach bleeding in some people. But uh, I think it looks like a tonic in having such general effects of preventive nature. Aspirin, in addition to its well-known effects of reducing fever, pain, and inflammation, reduces risk of heart attack, 
it reduces risk of colon cancer, reduces risk of esophageal cancer, may reduce risk of, of Alzheimer's disease. I mean, it's this generality of action and a preventive nature that I think qualifies it as a tonic. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is if you start taking all the things that, that are recommended, I mean, it's like you really have to manage your pills here, you know? You do, and that's why you want to you have good information and just focus on what you really want to do. You know, I recommend taking antioxidant vitamins and minerals, a B-complex. I take my aspirin. Uh, I, I'm traveling a lot at the moment, and the particular tonic that I use is maitake mushroom. I take a liquid extract of that. And uh, despite the rigors of a book tour and a lot of airplanes and interacting with a lot of people, I haven't gotten sick at all. And I, I attribute some of that to using this, uh, that tonic formula. And one of the chapters in your book had to do with air travel. Absolutely. Which I thought was real interesting. Yeah. Because a lot, you know, a lot of us do it. I have a series of customized plans um, for people with particular needs. There's one for men, one for women, for people who travel frequently, for people who live in big cities, for example, for pregnant women, for kids. Uh, I think we all have somewhat special needs. And yes, I think traveling is, is difficult and that uh, flying in airplanes is a very unhealthy environment. Uh, you know, not only are you in close proximity with a lot of people, you're not moving, so circulation is stressed, uh, you're served awful things to eat, uh, and worst of all, the air is recirculated and and uh, it's drying and irritating and uh, an easy source of infection. I thought you had a great suggestion. Ask for an oxygen tank. Yeah. They all carry it. I know. I think many uh, people don't know this, that, that airlines are required to carry a certain number of canisters of oxygen. And if you have discomfort breathing, which I sometimes do in airplanes, you know, I really feel, it feels oppressive to me, you can ask the flight attendant for a bottle of oxygen and she has to bring it to you. Right. <laughs> great <laughs> suggestion. I'm sure the airlines are going to be saying, who is this Andrew Wilde character <laughs> telling everybody to ask for oxygen? <laughs> you know